Hi, everybody, and welcome to this UK and Changing Europe event. Delighted to welcome you to discuss the very interesting topic of Boris Johnson and Parliament. Those of you who are uh, very, very aware will note that I'm not Professor Anand Menon. Unfortunately, Anand uh, is dropped out and handed this baton over to me. Uh, that's not totally unrelated to the fact that he's on question time later tonight. Uh, but it's also partly because, uh, because very unfortunately as well, Dame Cheryl Gillan, MP, who is due to join us, is, is unable to do so. So uh, we didn't want to surrender this to a predominantly male panels. So I'm delighted to be chairing what is going to be a really interesting event. We've got three great panellists to bring you. And of course, because we've only got three panellists, we've got loads more time for your questions. So our panellists, uh, and they're going to speak in this order, so the Right Honourable Mark Harper. Mark is uh, MP, well known for being a former Chief Whip, a former Home Office Minister, and possibly most recently in the news as the leader of the uh, increasingly powerful, some might say, COVID recovery group. Then, uh, to give us a perspective from the Lords, we're joined by Lord Young, Lord Young of Cookham, uh, as Sir George Young was a serial chief whip, I think he was a bit of a repeat offender as a chief whip, uh, a go-to person to help prime ministers out, and very, very effective in that role. So he has got uh, what I'm sure he wouldn't mind me describing as quite a lengthy set of parliamentary experiences and observed many prime ministers trying to manage their relations with both houses of parliament. And then last, but absolutely by no means least, we have uh, Meg Russell, Professor Meg Russell, Director of the Constitution Unit, uh, Senior Fellow at UK in a Changing Europe, of course, and author of a report this week that you should have all have read and that Meg will brandish at you if you fail to notice it about how Parliament can become more of the master of its own fate. Uh, that's taking back control, looking at how Parliament might have more of a say over its agenda and more of a say over its time. And some of us will know quite why that is a hot topic at the moment with the government, uh, only, only the government being able to recall parliament determining when parliament sits and until we uh, had the Supreme Court decision also able to prorogue parliament, it looked like at will. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to our panelists. But first, uh, if you do have a question, please post it in Slido. Uh, you know the system. So get posting away and please, please, please remember to upvote questions you like rather than post the same question again. If someone has put in that question that you think is absolutely on the nose, give that one a thumbs up and that will move to the top of the queue. And fairly moronically, I will probably ask the most popular questions, but I will also ask what I think are the most interesting ones. So let's head away and I'm going to hand straight over to Mark Harper. Mark, would you like to just give us your reflections on Boris Johnson's tenure? I think it's fair to say Boris Johnson, perhaps not noted a noted parliamentarian in the way some other prime ministers have been. Uh, uh, but uh, how's he been handling Parliament? since he became Prime Minister at the end of July 2019. Mark. Jill, um, thank you very much. Well, I think I divide the period since then, I think, into three. Um, I think the period from when he became Prime Minister through to the general election in December 2019, I think was inevitably a, a rather bumpy period between uh, uh, the Prime Minister and Parliament um, for this reason. The public had voted in a referendum to leave the European Union and Parliament didn't have a or arguably didn't have a majority to deliver that. So effectively, that period was dominated by the government wanting to get Brexit done. And I think inevitably it set up a bit of a Parliament versus the people issue where there was a perception that a group of parliamentarians were trying to stop that happening. Uh, and the government was very much focused on getting it done. And I, I think inevitably that led to a lot of executive action and a lot of tension. Um, and, and, you know, we can we can have questions about that. But I, I don't think actually that was typical of how the prime minister would, would have liked to um, continue things. And we saw once the general election had taken place um, and the government then had a working majority, I, I think we saw a 
a different uh, approach. But I think it was inevitably dominated by the Prime Minister's then senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, who don't think this is giving away any uh, enormous secrets, doesn't have a very high opinion of members of parliament. Uh, and I think tended to view the position that with a majority of 80, the government could pretty much do what it liked. Uh, and I think he rather missed the point, uh, which I'm very well aware of having been a former chief whip, that actually members of parliament have views, they represent their constituents, and actually you, you have to take them with you. Um, and the government has to win arguments and of course, it, it has a lot of loyalty from backbenchers, but it does have to win arguments and you have to take people with you. Uh, and I think the period, therefore, up until the, the end of last year, uh, I think was a very difficult one, partly for that reason and also because of COVID um, for, for two reasons. One is because COVID meant that Parliament couldn't meet in its normal way for a big chunk of that period, a period where we didn't meet at all. Then we were meeting virtually and then when we came back people would be very well aware of all the restrictions on the numbers and the chamber and a really difficulty in colleagues being able to meet with each other personally and engage and talk through issues all of the personal relationships that help parliament function properly so i think that was very difficult um, and i also think that the nature of the pandemic has meant inevitably very rapid decision uh, making and sometimes that hasn't always properly in my view involved parliament ministers have taken decisions uh, and come to parliament afterwards sometimes that order of things has been inevitable but I sometimes don't think parliament's been involved properly and we saw a very good example of that you alluded to my um, chairmanship of the COVID recovery group back in uh, when we had the second lockdown um, and we had some engagement with the government uh, and asked for information uh, and I don't think the government really properly engaged with us. Uh, and that was why a significant number of, of uh, M Conservative MPs voted against the government at that point, not with any great uh, relish. I mean, I, as a former chief whip, particularly uh, uh, relish the, the sort of title of becoming sort of rebel in chief or rebel commander or whatever people called me. Um, but it was, I think, inevitable because of the way um, Parliament was being treated. And then finally, I... I think there's some initial signs that the relationship is becoming a better one and uh, and we've seen that I think with some personnel changes with uh, Dominic Cummings having left um, the Prime Minister's hired a new chief of staff uh, Dan Rosenfield uh, he's held a, a meeting with uh, Conservative MPs and certainly the tone from Downing Street is very positive now about wanting to properly include members of Parliament uh, a proper sense of two-way traffic. Um, and we've also had some very positive engagement with uh, Allegra Stratton, the new press secretary. So as well as engagement with the prime minister and with ministers, there, there is a sign, I think, as we, as we you know, have moved into 2021, that I think the government recognises uh, that it needs to take members of parliament with us. And final um, just twist on that is, I think we've seen just recently with the uh, debate on universal credit, We've seen on the debate this week about the genocide amendment to the trade bill. I think the government's recognised that there are some big arguments coming and it's got to win those arguments with MPs. And a majority of 80 has to be worked at every day. You can't just assume that you win every single vote by that if you don't make the arguments. And so I think we're going to see that engagement between the prime minister, and the government of parliament becoming stronger over the remaining four years of this parliament. I just, I just wanted to ask you, Mark, as a former chief whip, are you surprised that that majority of 80 has, if you like, proved so unreliable uh, straight after the election? I rather naively assumed that parliament would sort of go away as a significant uh, forum with once Boris Johnson had recorded that fantastic election victory, not least with lots of new MPs who owed their election victory so much to him? Well, I, I think it's possibly, it's two, two things. I think, I think partly COVID and the uh, dramatic nature of some of the decisions that, that Parliament's been having to grapple with that have really tested um, people's loyalties, I think, I think has been one factor. But I do think it's a, it's a reaction 
to the way that the, the government, when uh, Dominic Cummings was there, was treating members of parliament. I think members of parliament, conservative members of parliament, you're right, recognised they were elected to support a conservative government. And I think many MPs recognised that it was the prime minister's personal uh, campaigning qualities that got them elected. Um, and so they're, they're minded to support the government, but that does require the government treating members of parliament properly and, and taking members of parliament into their confidence and winning those arguments. And if you don't even make an attempt to do that, I don't think you can be surprised that you're, you're not going to win those arguments with MPs. But I think that lesson, I think, has been learned and there's now a sign that number 10 is behaving in a different way, which I think is incredibly positive. Good. That's, uh, that's a really interesting point to end on. Uh, let's go to Lord Young and have a bit of a view from the Lords, but also any reflections, uh, uh, Lord Young, you might like to just make on, uh, you know, as a former Chief Whip looking at the Commons, have you been looking on slightly surprised, I think, at some of the government's travails in the Commons with what in other circumstances might have been regarded as quite a healthy and reliable majority? Mm. Well, thank you, Jill. Um, I've been in Parliament when we've had an even bigger majority under Margaret Thatcher, and even then we had difficulties, um, some of which I'm afraid I was responsible for, the, the poll tax, if you remember that. We had a majority of, of 100, and I led a rebellion. Um, I want to talk mainly about Boris's uh, relationship with the Lords, but if I could add a footnote to uh, the very interesting talk that Mark has just given, I, I agree that it makes sense to divide the question of Boris's relationship into, I think, two, basically pre-November 2019, uh, no majority, a divided parliamentary party, Brexit unresolved, and an activist speaker. And then post-November 29, with a good majority, a much more cohesive parliamentary party, uh, Brexit legislation passed, and a more conventional speaker whose interpretation of forthwith is something which could, I think we can all agree with. And against that background, I agree with what Mark said towards the end. I think the prospects for a more, a more harmonious re relationship may be better, though there are still some issues to overcome. Uh, talking about Boris, uh, his relationship with the Lords, uh, the terms of trade are clearly different as the government uh, has no majority and the two opposition parties down here can uh, outnumber the Conservatives whenever they want to. On appointments to the Lords, um, I think Boris showed some magnanimity in putting Ken Clark and Philip Hammond in the Lords after their opposition in the dying months of the last Parliament. But uh, no appointment for David Lidington, a former Lord Chancellor and effectively Deputy Prime Minister under uh, Theresa May. But on appointments on the other side of the balance sheet, there was the loosening of Theresa May's policy of restraint in the volume of uh, new appointments. It's just worth um, pointing out that the Labour Party benefited as well as the Conservatives in refreshing their members. And in December, they got five new peers uh, to our eight. On numbers, the, the Lords have agreed we are too large and we've resolved to get our numbers down to the same level as the Commons. And we were making good progress by a combination of uh, uh, retirements and restraint and the old man with the scythe. But I think we do now need a new concordat uh, with the government setting out uh, what's going to happen for the remainder of this parliament and setting out how both sides are going to contribute to uh, getting the numbers down. Perhaps a reconvening of the Burns Committee with fresh targets uh, taking into account the last election. At the moment, there's little incentive for the leaders of the various parties to persuade people to retire if the numbers are simply topped up and we're back where we started. Um, related to that, we could make progress with the Grocop bill. This is a private member's bill to stop the by-elections for the 92 hereditary peers as vacancies uh, occur. It was always meant to be a stopgap, but in one recent by-election, there were more candidates uh, than voters, and at times it's straight from Ireland. Uh, now, in the last parliament, the government wasn't supportive of the bill, but I think it should review that. Uh, the vast majority of peers want reform. Only a handful are resistant. Uh, I don't believe in the conspiracy theory that uh, Boris wants to bring the House of Lords into disrepute by bumping up our numbers. Though, as I've said, we do need a concordat to avoid any reputational damage caused by our, uh, our size, not assisted by the disproportionate number of Liberal Democrats uh, compared with their representation in the 
House of Commons, and on average, they're younger than the rest of us. Uh, then we had the diversion of our proposed move to York. Uh, again, I don't believe this emanated from Boris, and it was difficult to take seriously. On costs, we would have had all the cost of refurbishing our end of the Palace of Westminster. You couldn't simply leave it to decay. But then we'd have had the cost of a new uh, Lords in York against the background of the huge costs of one chamber of parliament in Holyrood, quite apart from the logistical problems for ministers and the Lords and joint committees. Uh, that distraction, I think, has now been laid to rest. Uh, major Lords reform, primary legislation is on the back burner. It would be guaranteed to jam the logs in the parliamentary programme. But minor reform, where there is a consensus, is, uh, is possible. Uh, and then there's a section of the manifesto that said, after Brexit, we will also need to look at the broader aspects of our constitution, the relationship between the government, parliament and the courts. And uh, if you remember, a constitution, democracy and rights commission was promised in the first year. Uh, now that hasn't happened. And I asked a question about it last week. And the impression I got was that this was not top of the government's priorities. And they're more likely to break it down into component parts rather than set up a commission to cover all the issues raised by the title. And I think the background to that section of the manifesto was the hostility in the laws to prerogation and aspects of Brexit, although we didn't overplay our hand. And I think more problems were caused in the Commons through procedural devices uh, than down our end. Uh, prerogation deeply unpopular down our end, uh, and it happened to prompt my resignation from the government. Uh, I don't think the government are going to try that one again. But more broadly, I don't think the Lords have overplayed our hand. For example, recently we've met very critical time uh, deadlines for legislation without a guillotine, and we haven't indulged in multiple rounds of ping pong. Uh, potential confrontation was avoided over the internal market when the offensive section was dropped in the Commons because a deal was reached. We have a large number of civil servants and judges down our end who took a dim view, but also there was unhappiness from Brexiteers such as Michael Howard. But if there had been no deal, my guess is the Lords would not have pressed their disagreement. Uh, finally, more generally, I think we'd like more members of the Lords in the Cabinet, particularly as it's grown quite a lot in size. For example, now that DFID has been absorbed into the FCO, there could be a Lords Cabinet Minister covering overseas development who attended Cabinet. Then uh, finally, the Prime Minister comes regularly to the Association of Conservative Peers, our equivalent of uh, uh, the 22, and he spent an hour with us uh, yesterday. So I think with a combination of some restraint by the Prime Minister on appointments, restraint by the opposition parties and the Lords uh, on how often they use their numbers to defeat us, I think we can have constructive coexistence with the Lords doing what they do best, scrutinizing legislation, undistracted by constituency responsibilities, and using the skills and knowledge of peers, and giving the opportunity of the government to think again when we believe it's right to revisit controversial decisions. So that's all from me, Jill. Um, over now to Meg. That's great. So, uh, so Meg, a lot of uh, interesting points there about uh, whether laws played a useful role in the restraint, but also the vex issue of numbers new appointments and just the unwieldiness, I think, of the size of the House of Lords, which is quite amazing, stacked up against other uh, parliamentary institutions uh, in other countries. Meg, your reflections on Johnson's first 18 months into Parliament. Thanks very much, Jill, and, and huge thanks as well to the other speakers for participating in this joint event with the Constitution Unit. Um, back in September, I wrote a blog post on Boris Johnson and Parliament, uh, which documented 13 unhappy episodes in 13 months. Um, it had been my original intention to focus on 10 episodes, but I found there was just too much material. Um, I, I won't repeat all of them now. Some of them are pretty obvious, things like the prorogation, um, also the lack of consultation on the coronavirus rules. Um, and Mark focused less on this, the, um, the ending of MPs' Uh, rights to meet and vote virtually during the pandemic by Jacob Rees-Mogg against the wishes of many backbenchers and the Commons Own Procedure Committee, which incidentally led Cheryl Gillan, who is normally very polite and loyal, to accuse him of presiding over the death of democracy at Westminster. Um, we then had the briefing about uh, moving to York. We had attempts to um, parachute in chairs of the Liaison Committee and Intelligence and Security Committee, etc. 
And since then, um, the list has grown. Um, we've had the showdown with the former conservative leaders over the internal market bill, um, the announcement of the Christmas lockdown rules when Parliament was in recess and a refusal to recall, uh, despite people like Mark uh, calling for that. Um, continued arguments about reinstating full virtual participation, including that I thought somewhat shaming intervention by Tracy Crouch, who was locked out of a debate on breast cancer precisely because she was shielding when suffering from that very disease, and then the excessive appointments to the Lords. And the first time uh, by any Prime Minister that the House of Lords Appointments Commission has been overruled on its recommendations on propriety. So there's been quite a lot of eye-catching episodes, um, but what I want to do is take a step back um, and think about some of the patterns. Um, what do they suggest both about Johnson and about Parliament itself? Um, I want to draw out three key themes, each of which are troubling to some extent, though they do in some respects, and this, this touches on uh, very much what Marcus said, illustrate a kind of robustness in the system, an ability to rebalance as well. So the first theme is a seeming general failure to appreciate the value of scrutiny. A naive reading would suggest that when you're in government, parliamentary scrutiny is a nuisance that slows you down. Obviously, some party political point scoring designed just to embarrass a government or delay things does go on at Westminster, but there's much, much more to parliamentary scrutiny than that. Scrutiny from your own side, as well as your opponents, and from external observers, including the media and specialist groups when things are discussed in the public forum of parliament, is an essential means of spotting policy flaws, loopholes, or unintended consequences. The very process of a minister having to defend policy on the floor of either chamber or in front of an expert committee provides a useful stress test to make sure they've got the policy right. And it's not just a matter of parliament winning through tripping a minister up. Often scrutiny has a preventative effect. The fact a policy faces cross-examination forces ministers and officials to properly think it through in advance. They'll look harder for the loopholes themselves if they know these could be exposed under parliamentary examination. So for all these reasons, robust scrutiny leads to better and more robust government policy. The best politicians recognize this and welcome dialogue with parliament and stress testing of their policies. It's often the less capable and hence the more dangerous politicians who prefer just to assume that they know best. Similar arguments can be made about the value of other checks and balances in the constitution like regulators and courts. Untrammeled executive power isn't a route to good policy. My second theme relates to another kind of naivety about how parliament works. It's a frequent caricature of Westminster that parliament's weak, government always gets its way and backbenchers mostly do what they're told. But that's a myth and politicians who fall for it wind up in trouble. Theresa May perhaps fell for it over her Brexit deal. Nick Clegg certainly did when leading the coalition government's proposals on Lords reform, as Mark knows to his cost. In both cases, these politicians sought to lead where government backbenchers just weren't prepared to go. In fact, the lack of conflict between ministers and their backbenchers that often characterizes Westminster isn't a result of blind loyalty. As Mark has alluded to, it's often the result of lots of hard work behind the scenes communicating and negotiating. When that system works properly, policies lacking backbench support generally don't get put at all. Clearly under the pandemic, with lots of people absent, detecting the parliamentary mood has been more difficult than usual. But also, at least in the early stages, the Johnson administration simply didn't seem to comprehend this dynamic. A politician who understands the importance of behind the scenes communication to winning and maintaining parliamentary support really wouldn't suggest moving one of its chambers to the other end of the country. That would instantly fracture communication, both between government and parliament and between the chambers and hugely increase the risk of conflict. Hence of, 80, of, of 82 chamber parliaments around the world, just one cites the two chambers in different cities. And that's essentially an experiment in Cote d'Ivoire which has only just gone bicameral. Likewise, with respect to the Commons, it initially appeared that Johnson wasn't really interested in listening to or responding to the mood. Moments like the rebellion on the coronavirus regulations led by Sir Graham Brady, the 1922 committee chair, have made clear that that simply will not do. 
Perhaps someone who aspires to be world king not only assumes that they know best, but also that others will meekly follow their judgment. But to succeed as a leader in a parliamentary system where you depend on MPs to keep your job, you need to be as good at listening as pronouncing. As Mark has indicated, perhaps those lessons are now starting to be learnt. Those points were both about the strength of Parliament in a way, but my third point is about its weakness. While backbenchers can bite back and some rebalancing be achieved, recent episodes have also demonstrated Parliament's structural weaknesses when faced with an executive determined to go its own sweet way. With respect to the Lords, the problem of unregulated prime ministerial appointments has been obvious for very many years. In the early 20th century, the chamber had around 600 members. By the end of that century, it had more than double that. Only the Blair reform removing most hereditary peers brought its size down again. Indeed, the first bill seeking to limit the number of Lords appointments was debated over 300 years ago. Prime ministers just find it hard to resist handing out patronage and trying to bolster their own side. Some, like Theresa May, are better than others. Boris Johnson is worse. The only sure way, I agree with, uh, with George's uh, constructive suggestions on this, but the only sure way of preventing the Lords collapsing under its own weight is to put statutory limits on appointments. I'd suggest that 300 years is more than enough to wait. With respect to the Commons, the Achilles heel is government control of when the Chamber can sit and what it can discuss. That explains how Jacob Rees-Mogg could repeatedly block the Procedure Committee's proposals on extending virtual participation. It explains how ministers can deny debate on coronavirus regulations and refuse a recall when MPs demand it. And of course, it explains the prorogation. Jill has kindly already mentioned our report, and I'm just going to wave it <laughs> here, um, published this Tuesday entitled Taking Back Control. Um, I'd suggest if Westminster is going to be a sovereign parliament post-Brexit, it needs a far greater say over its own affairs, rather than having to beg time from the government, the very government that it ostensibly controls. So the turbulence under the Johnson government has demonstrated inadvertently, and sometimes to its own costs, aspects of parliament's strength, but it's also shown up weaknesses in parliament that urgently need to be addressed. Thank you. That's brilliant. Uh, we have a lot of questions coming in. And um, with respect to everybody who wants to know whether the panel sees any benefits from Brexit and stuff like that, I'm going to concentrate on those that actually deal with the topic we're discussing, which is Parliament. But brilliantly, for a UK and Change Europe Constitution Unit crossover event, there are quite a lot about parliamentary scrutiny of trade deals, the trade and cooperation agreement, and the fact that uh, the Future Relationship Committee was wound up last week. I think MPs already approved that, but then there were hints from the chair or former chair, Hilary Benn, that actually might not be useful to have it hanging around for another six months to enable it at the very least to take some evidence from Michael Gove and David Frost about the deal they had done. So I just wanted to ask all our panelists, you've got a lot of people saying, isn't it rather ironic? This is all about taking back control, but MPs will have less power to scrutinize trade agreements than MEPs would have done. Uh, they couldn't insist on the future existence of the FREU, uh, and they don't seem particularly interested. Uh, maybe they didn't uh, take up the opportunity in the trade bill that we saw to apply proper scrutiny there. So can I ask all of People. Actually, what do they think a proper scrutiny arrangement would look like for both trade deals, but also for the very many outstanding decisions that we see in the trade and cooperation agreement and this rather complex, uh, complex system going up into the Partnership Council? Mark, what, how should the government involve the Commons in looking at uh, both trade deals and future decisions under the TCA? Um, well, let, let me deal with the, the, the point that was raised there about the, the select committee. So, I mean, personally, um, Hillary Benn's select committee has done a great job. It was already extended by a year because, of course, it shadowed the Brexit department. Um, my own view is I do think that Lord Frost uh, and the future relationship should be scrutinised by Parliament. But personally, I, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with that being done by the 
uh, International Trade Committee. It is, after all, a a trade deal. I don't I don't think you need a special select committee just to do it. There was an argument about that, but uh, it, I, I it goes personally... quite a long way beyond trade, doesn't it? It does, after all, look at security <laughs> cooperation. It's got. I mean, quite a lot of select committees would be interested in it. It, David... it does, in which case I don't personally, I don't have any problem with the different select committees looking at the different aspects of it. I mean, actually having having the trade committee look at the, the trade pieces and then the Home Affairs Committee, you know, chaired by Yvette Cooper, dealing with the security things. I mean, there's a strong argument, actually, that having those specialist pieces of scrutiny where you've got experts in those particular policy areas is a better way, actually a, a more rigorous way of doing scrutiny than having a single committee um, trying to cover the whole the whole set of relationships. And of course, those relationships are going to develop over time. And actually, if the individual committees do that, they can pursue those particular areas over time. And it's true that Hillary Benn's committee could have done a, a single look now, actually they weren't going to exist in the future so they wouldn't have been able to do that ongoing work so i think actually it probably makes sense for the individual committees trade home affairs and so forth to to pick up that scrutiny on the general subject of trade deals i mean this is a, a difficult area because you cannot negotiate a trade deal uh by parliament with the government going off and trying to negotiate something and then having to come back and and renegotiating it in fact we saw that didn't work because in a way that's what happened with the Brexit uh, withdrawal agreement when the government didn't have a majority and there was a lot of second guessing going on about the government's view and then Parliament perhaps having a different view and we saw individual members of Parliament going off to Brussels uh, trying to have separate negotiations and I just don't think that works the government has to do the negotiation I think what's important is it sets out its negotiating objectives and that's debated and scrutinised by Parliament and, and that is indeed what the government has said that it will, will do. I think Liz Truss has set that out uh, very clearly uh, and then obviously it's up to Parliament whether or not it approves the trade deal. Now it obviously can't change individual bits of the trade deal but in I think what Meg said is very pertinent to this. Ministers negotiating a trade deal know that they've got to get Parliament's approval and they know what Parliament won't approve. And I think the government's made clear commitments around things like food standards, animal welfare standards. So a minister balancing all of the factors knows that they've got to come back to Parliament, win a vote on a trade deal, which means they've got to be able to present the balance of the things that we've signed up to in that trade deal in a way that's going to win parliamentary approval. And I think that is the best way of delivering that parliamentary scrutiny. I, I mean, you can't have parliament trying to negotiate, you know, in the place of the government. So I think the arrangements the government set out, I think are pretty solid. And obviously we'll see over the coming years as we negotiate different trade deals, how successful they are. Meg, do you agree with that, that they're pretty solid? Because I think quite a lot of MPs think they, I think there were some amendments weren't there by Jonathan Jangley to the trade bill suggesting more power for the Commons uh, to look at trade deals and a bit of concern that it's just fait accompli and the, using the crank procedures might allow the government to go away and not schedule debates and things like that. Well, I think maybe it's... Sorry, Mark, did you want to come back in? No, no, sorry. No, go on, Meg. You, I have plenty of... <laughs> Plenty of go. <laughs> um, I think it, it is a bit unfortunate that the groundwork for some of this was laid in. I thought I thought Mark's phases were very useful, and and you know it's optimistic to think that we may be in a third phase. You know I'd like to share that optimism. It's early days, but we're, we're broadly in agreement. I think on well we're broadly in agreement on phases two and three. Actually, let me just say one thing about phase one, <laughs> if I may. Um, it is something of a myth, I think that we got into this kind of people versus parliament situation that Mark referred to due to Remainers in parliament blocking Brexit. Um, I wrote a piece which I think appeared on the UK and a Changing Europe blog as well as the Constitution Unit asking who it was who, who prevented Theresa May getting Brexit done, uh, as was the slogan. And of course, Boris Johnson voted against, it, against her deal. Jacob Rees-Mogg voted against her deal. Priti Patel, I think, voted against it three times when the, the other two at least had relented on the third occasion. So I did think it was pretty, well, cheeky would be putting it politely, actually. Uh, I, I think it was pretty appalling uh, for Johnson to run a people versus parliament election when he was part of 
you know, I mean, he was he was he was asserting his backbencher's rights, uh, as were the others. But be honest, you were among those who blocked the deal. Uh, and Parliament's reputation took quite a hammering in that period. And I think a lot of that was um, was not deserving. Um, Mate, but just, the... on, just, just on that point, <laughs> and then I promise I won't intervene on the rest you. of your <laughs> comment. I think the argument, though, there, and I, I don't want to, thinking of Jill's injunction, I don't want to turn this into a Brexit discussion. I think the argument, though, is about whether the deal that Theresa May put forward was actually Brexit and whether we were effectively going to be signed up to following all the EU's rules. And from my point of view, I was one of those that voted against it twice. Um, my view is if we'd left on her deal, effectively, we'd have been in the worst of all worlds because we'd have been signed up to all the rules and having no power. So the argument was about whether that was actually Brexit or not. And, you know, without refighting all of that, I think that's the that's the perspective that many people had rather than the one that, that you put forward. Yes, yes. Well, I, I mean, I respect I respect all of that. And I and I said, you know, asserting backbenchers rights to vote against it. But it was the presentation, which I think was fundamentally rather dishonest, that this was all somebody else's fault. Uh, when the people who went on to form Boris Johnson's cabinet were amongst those who voted against the deal. So let's be honest, there was a big argument going on in the Conservative Party during that period about what Brexit meant. People took different sides. It was not the fault of a, remote, a Ramona parliament that this didn't happen. Um, I mean, I think in the last vote, if the Spartans had voted for the deal, it, it, it would have gone through. Um, and we wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have had a lot of that. But I think that then, you know, Mark is right that... Um, a lot of sort of people felt burnt by that experience. And immediately post-election, there was a strong desire to kind of shut Parliament out, a great suspicion of the dangers of scrutiny, the dangers of letting Parliament in. And the um, withdrawal agreement bill that came back after the election was very different to the one before the election, which had included a lot more provision for parliamentary oversight of the negotiating objectives, for example. And I think that set the tone rather for this next phase with trade agreements and things, which actually looking back maybe is rather regrettable. And maybe now, you know, as I said, good scrutiny makes for good decision-making and a little bit more transparency. And including, you know, if you include parliament in discussing the negotiating objectives, then it's much more likely that Parliament is going to agree with you at the end. And I, you know, Mark is right. Of course, some of these conversations are going on in other ways, but they perhaps could have been formalised um, a little bit better. Can I just say quickly on the on the uh, on the, um, the the committee? Um, I think probably Mark and I would agree on this um, to a, a significant extent. But I think that this is quite a nice example of the sorts of things that we talked about in our report in terms of backbenchers' ability or non-government members' ability to get things debated when they want to get them debated. I, I know that Parliament approved the committee ending in January previously, and then arguably Hillary Benn believes that circumstances changed uh, because it took longer to get the final agreement than expected and they were running out of time uh, to scrutinise it. And he thought the committee's life should be extended. And he asked Jacob Rees-Mogg as leader of the House uh, to propose a motion to do so. And Jacob Rees-Mogg didn't want to do so. My best guess is that if a motion had been put to extend it and the government had whipped against extension, the government would have probably got that. Backbenchers probably would have supported the government on that. But you get this tension where you've got certain parliamentarians say they want to discuss something and having to go with a kind of begging bowl to the government to say, make room on the agenda. I think that if there's a genuine mood on the backbenches that something needs a decision, they should have access to time to be able to have a decision on that. And I worked for the right committee as a specialist advisor and the report picks up to an extent where the right committee left off in terms of the, the right committee actually used this term, take back control, in describing the relationship between the commons and the government more than 10 years ago. So that's where we take our title from, despite how it might look, you know, where the obvious place it might look to have come from. Um, it had this phrase in its report about the current arrangements demonizing government and infantilizing backbenchers because the government is always getting the blame for time not being made to discuss things. But actually, if Parliament had more control of its own agenda, it could take those decisions for itself. And we would see whether it really supported the extension of the committee or not. And, and I suspect, in all honesty, it, it wouldn't have done. All right. And that would remove Henry Ben's grievance. 
I know Lord Knull, I think, who chairs the Lord's EU committee, has pointed out that their committee goes on. So I wonder if Lord Young might just say, you know, what does he think the role of the Lords will be in scrutinising the UK's future relationship with the EU as it evolves, including the uh, knotty questions around the Northern Ireland Protocol, but also future trade agreements? Are you satisfied with your role in that? I think we've just seen a very good example <clears throat> of how the, the Lords can add value to the discussion. There's a trade bill going through at the moment, and in the Lords we carried a, a, an amendment was carried against the wishes of the government about human rights in China, and that went to the Commons and it was narrowly overturned, and it's coming back to us. So it, it picks up something that Meg was saying about the lack of scrutiny uh, and the lack of um, ability in the Commons to do things that the government might not wish. In, in, the, in the Lords, there, there are no such constraints. And what we've done on China and the Trade Bill is a good example of how um, the, the, the extension of government control of the business does not extend to both sides of Parliament. And I think, again, as, as future legislation goes through, um, the government may be able to get it through the Commons, but we will have the right to get the Commons to think again, and we can push it. And what normally happens is um, neither side wins outright. There's a compromise. And everybody feels that, uh, that they've, the bill is now better than it was. And I, I think that'll be the role of the House of Lords um, in, in scrutinising this legislation, is to give the opportunity to the Commons to think again, and then try and broker a compromise that everybody can live with, and ends up with a slightly better piece of legislation than the one that was uh, that, that we started with. Okay, let's go on. We've got quite a few questions about legislation here, because I think one of the things we've seen with Brexit is quite a lot of legislation introduced that then depends very much on the use of secondary legislation, delegated legislation, which doesn't tend to get very much scrutiny. Uh, and various people are asking about, you know, Actually, is this a sort of bit of an aberration? Uh, is this a sort of legacy of Brexit that we're having this surge in secondary legislation? And is there anything that Parliament can do to take back control, to use Meg's phrase and a phrase used in other contexts as well, of this sort of proliferation of secondary legislation? It's one of the themes in the Brexit Beyond report that UK and Changing Europe produced this uh, this week with concerns both about that from the Hansard Society and also Alison Young talking about the increasing willingness of ministers to use Henry VIII powers. Meg, do you have a view on whether there's anything Parliament can do to take back control of legislation or all these done deals, all the secondary legislation? Will that, will that persist as a habit? I, th I think this is really difficult. Uh, I mean, there are two things that have greatly added to the volume of secondary legislation. First is Brexit, obviously, uh, which is just, you know, a phenomenally complicated policy challenge with, you know, our laws being interwoven with European law for 40 years. There's an awful lot of unpicking to do and you would clog up Parliament uh, forever if you had to take all every individual change through primary legislation so that there's there's justification for using secondary legislation but the the problem is where the boundaries come and how far the government kind of tries its luck in getting actually quite big things through under secondary legislation that ought to have closer scrutiny but then of course we've had covid and actually i think i mean mark no doubt will want to comment on this under covid things have been even worse because you've had these uh the so-called made affirmative um, instruments which come into force. They, I mean, they make major changes, you know, locking down, introducing quarantines, introducing £10,000 fines in some cases, uh, which actually come into force often, you know, a matter of minutes or hours after they've been published and before Parliament has even had a chance to see them, let alone debate them and vote on them. And this very much touches what I was saying about good scrutiny making for good policy, because they've often been actually um, sort of unraveled afterwards because they're seen to have flaws in because they hadn't been read and scrutinized in advance. And this makes it very difficult to convince members of the public to follow the rules if it's difficult to even get a sense of what they, what they are. So I think those two, the, you know, Brexit and COVID have both created a rather unhealthy situation where the government is getting into the habit now increasingly of doing major policy changes through secondary legislation. And I think that is something that needs 
serious review now. I mean, they're both extraordinary events, but I think on both of them, the government has gone too far. And I think the relevant committees, George might comment on this, you know, the important committees in the Lords, which have been quite agitated about this. And it's not even, you know, these arguments have been going on since before Brexit. And I think we do need now a review of the boundaries between secondary and um, uh, and primary legislation and how much scrutiny each gets. This is an area where we tend to get uh, to get very critical reports in the House of Lords Constitution Committee, I think, when those bills come forward. But Lord Young, do you think there's any prospect that governments will uh, reduce their addiction, if you like, to secondary legislation? Well, um, Henry VIII is very unpopular down uh, our end of the building. And uh, as, as Meg said, it's where you, where you strike the boundary. And what the House of Lords is quite good at doing is saying, this bill has simply got too many Henry VIII's clauses. We'd like slightly more on the face of the bill and slightly less. And also, without getting into an argument about affirmative and negative procedures, um, we're quite good at getting um, the type of secondary legislation changed. We have a, quite a powerful delegated legislation committee. And uh, under negative procedures, um, basically stuff goes through. Under affirmative procedure, it needs a, a, a debate and approval. And we're quite good at shifting those boundaries and occasionally getting the boundary moved back a bit in the way that I think Meg was advocating and getting things written on the face of the bill rather than giving powers to the minister. So uh, down this end of the building, the, the, um, there are some, some keen uh, uh, opponents of Henry VIII. Uh, and the government has a really hard time, not just from the crossbenchers and those who are worried about Henry VIII, but also the subcommittee that goes through the bills with a fine tooth comb and produces reports on all the delegated powers and quite often makes recommendations, which um, I was going to say more often than not, but certainly quite frequently the government accepts and uh, uh, bows to the view of the, uh, of, of the opponents of Henry VIII. And Mark, we saw a bit of that, didn't we, in the in the original Theresa May Great Repeal Bill, EU Withdrawal Act, with the Sifting Committee being established in the Commons to look at secondary legislation. But do you detect any appetite among your colleagues for shifting the balance back and making it harder for the government to just, just take quite sweeping powers in secondary legislation? Well, I think there's three things. I think, look, there's there's been a one-off process where we've had to do a huge amount of change to, to 40 years of legislation, as Meg said, to, to do Brexit. But I think that was a the one-off. And it's worth just saying, when we were in the EU, huge amounts of laws covering quite big areas were done by secondary legislation, implementing EU law, frankly, where we couldn't do anything about it at all, because... Uh, you just had to ram it through. So we didn't get a lot of that much complaints about it at the time. But I think that that will have stopped. Um, I think COVID does flag up an issue. Um, I accept there have been times when the government's needed to act really quickly and put the law in place and then Parliament debates it afterwards. But in my view, there have been a number of occasions when actually there's been enough time where, where ministers could have put the legislation in front of Parliament first debated it, had the House vote on it um, before it came into force. And I agree with Meg, I think the evidence is that scrutiny would have improved it and actually would have meant that the public would have understood that legislation. And not just the public, by the way, the police and those that have to um, enforce it. Um, and then the, the final point, generally, uh, I do think there's a, a, a difficult area about where the balance is, um, but partly that's in our own hands. And I think actually because of COVID, I think MPs are going to pay more attention to secondary legislation where it's significant. Uh, and I agree with George, the House of Lords does a good job here about pushing back and, and strengthening the controls on secondary legislation. And, and I think that balance between the Commons and the Lords works well and uh, long may it continue. Meg, you want to come in? Meg? Sorry, lost my mouse there. I couldn't unmute. I was just going to throw in something else, which I thought Mark was going to say, and he didn't, which is, of course, the COVID situation makes, you know, it's just so much more difficult to get things organised as well. So, you know, we've got this, this huge volume of secondary legislation, and we've also got circumstances where it is actually very difficult for MPs to meet. They're not meeting in the usual way. The normal kind of back-channel back conversations are maybe getting broken up, as I referred to in my opening remarks. So it's a very unfortunate coming together of, of well, two things, I suppose, Brexit and coronavirus, but for coronavirus having two effects, one of which is the need for doing policy very fast, 
uh, on controversial stuff, but also Parliament being itself kind of somewhat hobbled by the circumstances. And we've got to get beyond that. There is, an, there is an argument, actually, that there is an argument that once we're out of the COVID emergency, actually taking a look at the Public Health Act again and the powers it gives ministers mm. to make secondary legislation, it would be worth, I think, doing that, if you like, in peacetime once we're out of this emergency, just to have a debate there about the checks and balances, about whether we can improve them. No, I think that's very interesting. It's always good to look at emergency legislation when there's not an emergency rather than when you actually haven't used it, though. Uh, people like Mark's COVID recovery group seem to have done quite a good job of organising uh, organising while Parliament's not meeting, as far as I can see. I want to come on to another sort of tranche of questions here about how well ministerial accountability is working. There are quite a few questions about, do we really think Parliament's actually doing a very good job of holding ministers to account? The speaker seems to be sort of sometimes a bit irritated with ministers who don't make statements to Parliament. First, even Lindsay Hoyle has been getting quite annoyed with the government over that. Senses that the Prime Minister actually doesn't really engage with questions at PMQs. So it's actually not a very productive process. I wonder whether a uh, sort of set of questions are, is there anything that parliamentarians can do about this to sort of, you know, reassert Parliament. You could argue also that if we were having, we've got the Downing Street press conferences, but we're also going to have these on the record press conferences by Allegra Stratton in the future, which you could argue sort of moves a bit more of the focus away from Parliament into Downing Street as the place that gives the news uh, to the world. Uh, Lord Young, you've been an observer of this for a long time. Is it any worse than it has been or is this all just you know, path of the course? Well, um, I think it has got worse because we've now got 24-hour seven uh, news, which you didn't used to have, and ministers having to respond quite quickly to uh, stories and can't always make a statement to the House of Commons before they go on the radio. But uh, just to pick up well, one, one point from that question, uh, I agree that Prime Minister's questions quite often does not end up with anybody being any wiser. I've always been slightly surprised that the liaison committee uh, exchanges with the prime minister, which are serious sessions lasting, well, they used to last three hours with the chairman of select committees uh, sitting around the table, very experienced parliamentarians. I've always been slightly disappointed that we haven't had more out of the liaison committee uh, exchanges with the prime minister when he can't just you know, duck the question because he's there for three hours. And I, I just wonder whether the liaison committee couldn't make slightly more use of that time. And again, on holding ministers to account, um, on the floor of the House of Commons, they can normally get away with it. But in front of a select committee, when you're quite often on your own for up to two hours, being questioned by your brief by people on a select committee with a special advisor briefing them, that is holding ministers to account. And, and quite often, um, when you hear about the House of Commons, it's not what's going on in the chamber that's on the news, it's what's happening in a select committee. And in a sense, the centre of gravity has shifted a bit uh, from, the from the floor of the chamber to the select committees, uh, where, where life is tougher for, uh, for ministers. So I think the, the questioner may be looking at the wrong location to see where ministers are held to account by looking on the floor. That's not, the, that's not the, where it's difficult. It's difficult in a select committee. Now, Mark, would you agree with that as a former minister? Yeah, yes, I would, actually. I think if you're, I mean, it's difficult at the moment anyway, because so few MPs are physically present and it, it, it takes a lot of the life out of the chamber. But no, I would agree with George. When I was a, a departmental minister, you know, preparing for a session with the select committee where you've got people who uh, are really focused on the subject matter. And as George says, you know, you're going to be there for a couple of hours and people can ask question after question after question and pursue a theme. It's that business where people can keep chipping away at it. You really do need to know your stuff. And it's the preparing for it piece, which is actually just as important as what happens at the committee. And I think that's where George's point about PMQs. I don't think PMQs has ever been a very uh, revelatory process. What is important about it, which people don't always see, is that the fact the Prime Minister has to prepare for it and ask for information from across government actually helps him keep a focus on things and does actually, I think, give him a very good sense of what's working and what's not. So I think 
there's a there's an indirect benefit that PMQs have, which may not always be entirely obvious when you look at the the, the performances. Peg. Yeah, completely agree with Mark there about the subtle power of, of PNQs and it fits with, you know, there's so much more to Parliament and its power than what you can see on the surface. And that's a really fine example. On the question of ministerial accountability, I think there are two sides of this. Um, you know, I think it, it's interesting, isn't it, that Mark made reference in his opening remarks to his in phase one, having a kind of activist speaker and that having ended. The expectation, I think, when uh, Lindsay Hoyle took over was that he was going to be somewhat tame. But it's been very striking the how frustrated he seems to have become, particularly in the early phases of COVID and how strong his language has been sometimes in condemnation. I think he's accused ministers of holding parliament in contempt and that kind of thing, which you would think was very Burkow-like language. It must take a lot to get Lindsay Hoyle that wound up about these, um, you know, announcements being made in Downing Street press conferences rather than in parliament and so on. But I think, you know, going back to Mark's analysis, we have moved on from that phase. And I think it, it would be fair to pay tribute to the work of Mark and his colleagues in actually pulling things back, because I think it's going to be behind the scenes pressure from people like Mark, um, as well as those words from the speaker that, that has brought ministers back in front of the House of Commons in a more appropriate way more, more recently. But there is also another side to the ministerial accountability story, which is maybe slightly pushing the boundaries of uh, this, uh, this event, because it's not directly about Parliament. But all of the controversies about following the ministerial code, you know, we've seen ethics advisors being ignored, uh, resigning from government. It's rather similar to the point about that I made about the House of Lords Appointments Commission. You know, you have these independent regulators making recommendations and their recommendations being ignored. And I think that has been on a broader constitutional front and a worrying aspect of the Johnson administration that it was maybe, you know, born in Cummings time and maybe it will change, you know, but it didn't quite work immediately after he'd gone on some matters, but um, that there's been a tendency, I think, in the Johnson administration to kind of be prepared to follow the letter of the law, but to push that as far as you can. And, you know, we do not have a legal constitution in the UK which is adjudicated by judges. We have a political constitution, which very often depends on senior political figures actually behaving well and kind of following the, the traditional rules of the game. And if you don't do that, ultimately the only comeback is to nail things down legally more and more. Um, so, you know, to put the House of Lords Appointments Commission on a statutory basis to make sure that its recommendations have to be followed, you know, to legislate for prorogation because you can't trust ministers not to abuse the powers they've got. And I think we've got to be really wary of that. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more moves in that direction <sighs> under pressure, really, from the behaviour sometimes of Johnson and his advisors and his ministers. Um, and it, I would like to hope that Mark is right, that we're entering a new phase now where there's less antagonism and more understanding of the negotiation and compromise that comes with politics and the, the sort of ethical standards that are required. So I just wanted to come back to our two parliamentarians on precisely that. I mean, Mark, Mark uh, Lord Young, is it realistic to expect Parliament, um, after all the executives drawn from having a majority in the legislature. We don't have a US-style separation of powers where they may about to put Donald Trump on trial. Is it at all reasonable to expect Parliament ultimately to discipline a government that, uh, that doesn't uh, observe some of these, you know, good chapsy sort of conventions, as Peter Hennessy might put it? Well, I, th I think Meg made an interesting suggestion that from what, from what she said, I think she'd like a judge to decide whether or not the ministerial code had been broken and therefore it would be for the courts to decide the composition in some cases of a prime minister's cabinet. Well this I, is, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily in favour of that but what I'm saying is that's the direction in which this pushes well, if you don't respect the, yeah. the, the, the unenforceable rules if you like. Yeah, yeah. I think um, just to come back at, uh, at Mick's point, I think uh, th there is a point where um, Parliament uh, particularly the governing party, can say that actually um, that particular decision by the Prime Minister on the exercise of his discretion on the ministerial code um, 
was wrong and we, we, we no longer have confidence in that particular minister. So I think there was a sanction there, uh, which doesn't go to, as far as the courts. And I'm glad Meg isn't going to, to press that. There was a political sanction. And I've seen cases where, uh, going back to the 1980s, where backbench MPs have lost confidence in a minister and the prime minister has been forced to dismiss that minister. So that, that power is there within, within parliament. Uh, it has been exercised. Um, and for all I know, it may be exercised again in the future if um, the prime minister maintains confidence in a colleague who's lost the confidence in the commons. Mark, final word. Uh, do we need to strengthen any of these conventions? Maybe I, lock some of these regulators more closely into Parliament or something well, like that? Well, I think, no, I, I think George is right. Ultimately, these are political decisions and I would be against them being decided by either courts or external regulators. Ultimately, the, the checks and balances are there. They may not always be as transparent, but George is right. Ultimately, Prime Minister makes decisions and the check and balance on him is a political one. And it might be a bit messy, um, but I think it actually works in the end. And, and I think we get to the right outcomes. OK, well, that's, uh, I think, a, a good positive point to end that at the end of the day, we get to the right outcomes. Hopefully, Mark is right with that. But I would just like, on your behalf, to thank our fantastic panellists uh, for joining us at this uh, UK and Changing Europe Constitution event. Lord Young of Cookham, Mark Harper, Meg Russell, uh, could you fill in the survey? Uh, because we'd like to know what you thought of it, who was there, there seems to be lots of people. Thanks so much for all your millions of questions. Sorry that I didn't get to the overwhelming majority, but I think we picked up some really interesting themes. And please do watch out for future Isolation Insight events. So thank you very much for joining us and good afternoon. <laughs>